You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. There are still people up in Oregon who remember a hobo called A Number One and a railroading man named Shaq and the fight they had in 31. Clear to Portland and back. And the winner will be Emperor of the North Pole. A number one was king of the bows, as tough and as hard as nails. I'm trusting you, kid. Cover for me. Hey, you come back here! He takes what he needs, and he goes where he wants, and he always rides the rails. Confessioner. The Lord is my tabernacle. And his ship is filled with gold. Set sail for the pearly gates. Hallelujah, brother! A number one. He loved the road, and he knew it from A to Z. Shaq was a man who loved only the rules. And nobody goes for free. Next time I pick up an empty, I'm not going to have it burned. You will never let it happen again. Never! In one of Shaq's hands is a hammer of steel. In the other, a four-foot chain. And both of them carry a message of death if you try to set foot on his train. I did it. I rode your damn train. There's only one bow that's got the stuff to try me. You ain't even on the list. Now, the king of the hobos traveled by train, and he always traveled alone. But a tag-along kid named Cigarette said he was the heir to the this throne. This ain't no game. Any tramp that sets foot on my train, I'd hold him out and shake him to death like a snake. You ain't stopping at this hotel, kid. The stars at night, I put him there. My road, kid, and I don't give lessons, and I don't take partners. Look, do exactly what I do. Nothing more. Don't like it. Just do it. And the fast mail going through the junction at 710. That's 11 minutes. I'll be there in four. Not at yard speed, you won't. I won't be going yard speed. I'm going to highball. I'm not giving away another free ride. Well, the king of the tramps in the hobo camp knew just what had to be done. But the evil Shaq had a plan of his own for the murder of A number one. A number one to Portland on the 19th. But, but that's Shaq's train. Mark it. A number one! A number one! His name is on a tire, I seen it! Northbound to Portland! Five dollars, he makes it all the way to Portland. Okay, okay, I'll have the money. Tell the telegraph operator to let the boys down the line in on it. The challenge went up and down the line. A free ride to Portland and back. Some of the men bet on A number one, but most of the money's on Shaq. Shaq! Your fight's over here. The day they met, you knew from the start this was a fight to the death. They'd never give up, and they'd never give in, as long as the other drew breath. Lee Marvin is A number one. Ernest Borgnine is Shaq. And this is the fight of the century. Cleared up Portland and back. And the winner will be Emperor of the North Pole. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Colin Gallagher. Howdy. Also joining us in the booth is Mr. Noel Thingval. What, you never seen anybody shave before? This week on the Projection Booth, we are discussing Robert Aldrich's Emperor of the North Pole. Based loosely on the writings of Jack London and Leon Ray Livingston, the film tells the tale of two hobos in the American Northwest during the Depression. 
A Number One, who's played by Lee Marvin, and Cigarette, who's played by Keith Carradine. The two have a very uneasy relationship with one another, and a completely antagonistic relationship with The Shack, played by Ernest Borgnine, a railroad bull who doesn't want any freeloaders on his train. Now, we're going to be getting to spoilers galore on this episode, so be warned. If you haven't seen Emperor of the North Pole, look for it as Emperor of the North, and you will be very happy when you see it. Cullen, when was the first time you saw Emperor of the North Pole, and what did you think? It was a few years ago. I think I was going through either um, Lee Marvin or Aldrich's filmography. This title popped up. I had never heard of it. No one had recommended it to me. I bought it. The DVD arrived, and I immediately thought, where has this been all my life? It was like a missing part of my soul. Noel, same question. About a decade ago, my dad and I worked our way through all of the films of Robert Aldrich. And this was one of those ones I had never heard of before. I I had never seen before. Knew nothing about it. Went in, and it has since become one of my favorite movies of all time. i got to say, that sounds like an amazing family activity. Oh, yeah. My dad and I are currently going through George Ray Hill. It's a thing we do. Ooh. Wow. That sounds great. Your family parties. Please invite me for Thanksgiving. I can't wait to see what you all do. There's a reason I'm currently reading the entirety of the world according to Garb. I saw this one probably on WKBD Channel 50 here in Detroit, and it was one of those afternoon screenings. They used to love to play stuff like Cool Hand Luke on the weekends, and they played this one. And I distinctly remember this film just because of the water tower and how confused I was by... N-O being used for number. I had never seen that before. So I was just like, what are they saying? A-no one. What does that mean? And then my parents had to help me out with this whole number thing. That was my amusing anecdote about this film. And yeah, I it is stuck in my head for all these years. And then revisiting it for this podcast. I mean, do you get better Titan actors than Lee Marvin and Ernest Borgnine and those two going at it? I don't think so. That finale is my all-time favorite fight scene in a movie. And just beyond fights, just one of my favorite scenes, period, with just the two of them going at it. I will rhapsodize about that quite frequently. The meaty intensity of those two combined with the meaty intensity of Robert Aldrich, it's like you couldn't ask for, for better. It's It's amazing. Yeah, I was trying to remember if we had talked about Robert Altridge on the podcast before, and sure enough, we talked about Kiss Me Deadly. There's such a difference between younger Robert Aldrich and older Robert Aldrich, especially as he starts to get a little later in his career, and he starts making all of these films, for me, that are just like so male-centric, things like The Dirty Dozen and The Longest Yard and Ulzana's Raid and these things, and Emperor of the North is right there. As far as just, I'm trying to think if, is there a woman in this movie, maybe other than in the background? And I can't even think of if there's one. But you've never seen anybody shave before, Eric. <laughs> That's right. Thank you. <laughs> That's it, right? I mean, it's. There's her and the boobs of the Baptist lady. That's about it. Talk about character actors galore. This movie is fantastic. And you get like 
Elijah Cook Jr. in here with like one line of dialogue. Sid Haig hanging out in the background. (laughs) uh, Simon Oakland, Vincenzo from The Night Stalker. He's in there. I mean, just everybody. Vic Tabak chewing on a big old stogie. So many amazing faces. So many great actors. And then the terrific, we've talked about him on this podcast many times, Charles Tyner in here. I mean, I love Charles Tyner, especially from things like uh, Harold and Maude, and he is terrific in this movie as well. I mean, everybody is at the top of their game. Yeah, it is. It is just such a collection of faces and personalities, and Aldrich just kind of cranking everything up so everything is just kind of all sweaty and greasy and colorful and distinctive, and it's just like yeah, someone who can pop in for like one line. And you, you instantly like mem- remember them because he, there's there's this very two fisted quality to Aldrich's direction that that I've always appreciated and, and yeah just the way he brings out so much personality and he uses close ups in this movie like nobody's business and to see Ernest Borgnine and Lee Marvin those amazing craggy faces in such tight shots in the way that Borgnine. Like those eyebrows and when he bugs out his eyes, I mean, just, and I'm talking about the faces and stuff because there's not a lot of dialogue at times. There are whole sequences that go on without any sort of lines. Lee Marvin's first line, I think, is just him hissing at that kid who was trying to steal his chicken. (laughs) And he puts a lot into that hissing. We'll see where he's beating the kids off with the chicken. (laughs) That's right. And when he's on the train with Cigarette, and he doesn't say a word, and then Cigarette comes at him like, Who you calling a fool? You call me a fool, I'll push your face in for you. He didn't say a word. He just said it all in his eyes. What's so remarkable about this script, I find, is that there are also these amazing passages of really poetic dialogue that Lee Marvin gets to say, like especially at the end. Is his last little uh, bit of dialogue as the train's going around the bend. It's very stylized dialogue. It's very slang driven and and just has so much, again, personality to it. But again, they use it. It's like there's long stretches of the movie where nobody's saying a thing. And then like when they talk, it it is just this kind of very poetic, almost fairy tale slang dialogue. It's wonderful. Well, you get that amazing patois of the hobo going on in here. I mean, you could set this movie at any time, I think, because really, at the end of the day, it's a struggle between two and a half men, I guess, kind of like the TV series, because it's like, it's really Lee Marvin and Ernest Borgnine going at it. And then Keith Carradine is like this little yippy dog who is just there all the time and basically just fucks everything up at every single turn. Not to say that I don't like his character because I think his character is terrific. He's playing a jerk and he plays it perfectly. And he speaks more than anybody else in the movie combined, I think. And he's always just this self-made myth maker and he is making these myths about him in this world that is this kind of mythic place and everybody's got these crazy nicknames you know you've got a number one as our main character you've got cigarette as the keith carradine character and then they always just refer to ernest borgnine in the script they call him the shack but in the movie they just call him shack all the time so of course i'm thinking of shack diesel and just you know that the amazing basketball player so every time they called him shack i was just like oh they should remake this and put shack in there i would not be against that just to see what would happen 
but but yeah, what I love with the the, the Carradine character is that it's very much a almost just this bitter defiance of the the typical youth mentor relationship in that this kid picks up a lot of lessons, but he ultimately doesn't learn squat and gets rejected at the end. It's a great way of flipping that on its head. One of the biggest things about just the kind of style of this movie and the world of this movie to kind of get into the the timeless quality of it, the film watching it again here uh, the other night, what, what actually came most to my mind are the Mad Max movies. It has a very George Miller feel of these long stretches of just visuals, you know, very kind of in-your-face humanity, a lot of very colorful faces and characters and designs. It's a very greasy, sweaty world full of nicknames and bizarre language and slang. And and it's kind of this whole world built around almost a social collapse and like parts where society is rebuilding, parts where it's like brutal and and just these kind of wandering guys who are just, just trying to get by. Rewatching it, I kept thinking about that opening text that's talking about, you know, it's the depression. All these people have are the train. Society has collapsed. And it almost like gave this sort of like post-apocalyptic quality to it. That was a weird thing was that they said it in 1933, whereas the original, I mean, all the original stories, the Jack London stories and the originally number one stories were set in the end of the 1800s when there was an even bigger economic depression. I'm not quite sure why they did that time jump, because it, it feels more like late 1800s than it does 1930s. Well, there was definitely something in the air in the 1970s where it was looking back at the Depression. They shoot horses, don't they? Uh, Paper moons. So many movies that came to mind as I was watching this and thinking about the Depression. And I think that was one thing as far as like maybe because – People didn't remember the late 1800s, and they really had the idea of the depression of the 19, you know, late 1920s, early 1930s, kind of in their minds, and then were able to rely on that. And then it's interesting too, because another movie that came to mind while I was watching this was Jerry Schatzberg's Scarecrow, which is a modern hobo story. And to think that there were hobos in the 1970s, and then these this movie about hobos from the 1930s, it's like, okay, the, there was probably something going on. I know there was the major inflation problems in the 1970s, so I wonder if there was some sort of like, uh, we're drawing parallels between our age and this age. I was sort of thinking about Easy Rider and sort of like the counterculture. You know, the Lee Marvin character is sort of this, you know, vagabond. He's, you know, he's a rebel. He's kind of going out, you know, against the law. He's doing everything on his own terms. He's just, you know, moving around the country. And I kept thinking about the bikers from Easy Rider and wondering, you know, how much that might have influenced some of these other movies or rather the parallel between that and some of these depression era narratives that were going on that also were about antiheroes. Well, yeah, one of the other movies that was right there when Easy Rider was coming out was Bonnie and Clyde and that. Definitely, you know, depression era, anti-heroes, and making these... Kind of an anachronistic feel. Exactly. The thing that you said about Mad Max is fantastic because the whole idea of these, like, desaturated colors, and you're talking about the dirtiness and everything, and even when they're not doing that scene in the fog where they are purposefully taking out a lot of the colors, when we're out of that sequence... I mean, there's so many browns. You're just seeing like browns and greens and earth tones throughout so much of this film. And it kind of does remind me of The Wasteland. To be fair, now I just want to see like The Shack versus Toe Cutter. Both A number one and Toe Cutter can do a mean hiss. Yes. Have you all seen the 60s remake of Stagecoach? No. I have not. 
I think it, I think it's fabulous. It came out a couple years before Easy Rider, but I just kept thinking about the way that they sort of reconfigured the Ringo Kid in very different terms. You know, uh, especially like the way he's introduced. You know, we remember John Wayne. He's standing up. He's holding the gun. He's heroic. In the '60s version, it's played by Alex Cord, and it begins with him lying on the ground. He's at the very bottom of the frame. And he's just such a slacker. He's such a bum. It's the exact opposite qualities. Well, yeah, a lot of times, even in this film, the way that Lee Marvin will just be at rest in that whole sequence in the, the train car when he and Cigarette first meet officially, and he just sits there for so much of it. He's, he seems so passive, and then you've got Cigarette just almost bouncing off the walls. You know, I called him a yippy little dog, and he acts like that. He's always in motion and always running around, and then Lee Marvin is just sitting there smoking his cigar, just giving him the one arch eyebrow, and he never has to say a thing. But yeah, I, I like what you're saying about the stagecoach stuff, especially with the way that Easy Rider played both on superheroes and on the Western stuff, especially with Billy the Kid, the Dennis Hopper character, trying to kind of re-contextualize uh, the Western. I'm trying to think of like a film that Robert Aldrich did that explored youth, and I can't think of any. And again, like here, Cigarette is a very antagonistic character, especially near the end. And so I don't I don't know if as you're trying to say something or if it's just ultimately again just a defiance of the of the the mentor trope. But again, what I love is that the rejection of him from a number one is that he doesn't care. It's all about himself and his image and his ego and trying to create his own myth. And a number one's just like I didn't have to create that. I just lived it just by trying to get by, you know. And he still cares about his fellow fellow bows. No, you're definitely right about that. He, he's a very human, very warm character. He's hard to warm up to, but yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I think there's definitely a, a commentary happening here about youth versus age that Lee Marvin and Ernest Borgnine are kind of contemporaries where Keith Carradine is not. And then Keith Carradine being the leader of those the wild boys, for lack of a better term, those two kids that are going after him, and the way that Lee Marvin handily defeats them, I think he's definitely saying something about experience over youth. Also, it doesn't hurt if you're Lee Marvin or Ernest Borgnine, who could probably just belt a guy, you know? <laughs> yeah, I feel very afraid when Ernest Borgnine is on screen, because you never know what he's going to do. hes I like that none of these characters really have backstories. You know, we don't get to see... We never see Shaq go home and take off the hat and take off the coat and stuff. He's almost always in his uniform. We never learn what made him become what he is. We never heard the backstory of what A number one was. And we don't care. Like I said, these are mythic characters and they just are what they are. And again, there's a very proto, almost kind of Walter Hill quality to that of it's characters who are just very much in the moment. What you see, what you see is what you get. There's depth there, but they're never going to paint any of the any of the backstory out for you. I think the most they do is just when uh, a number one just kind of guesses at the backstory about cigarette. You know, you've never done this before. You've just been staying in barns and all that stuff. Again, that still doesn't reveal anything about a number one. Doesn't reveal anything about the shack. Everyone's just scared of or respects both of them. They have a reputation. Speaking of Walter Hill, another great depression movie from this time, Hard Times. Mm-hmm. Exactly. 
Yeah, because that's what I, I remember when I when I first saw this film back in the day. I, I read the script way back then, and you know, with a number one and cigarette and all stuff. I kept thinking about hard times and the driver, where they're just these very stripped down minimalist characters. The other thing I like about this story too, and this is courtesy of Dana Poland, who did a terrific audio commentary for the DVD release of it, is he brings up the whole idea of the elementals and that we get earth, air, fire, and water so much in this film and the way that they call the shack the devil at one play, at one point in the movie. And he's there next to that furnace so much of the time and just him being associated with the fire and with the smoke and everything. And then the way that we've got the water and, and earth, I would say are more the elements that I associate with a number one. And just, uh, and, and then you get those weird scenes. Like I mentioned the, the scene in the fog, which kind of mixes yeah. it all together. And the way that we're able to have a number one and the rest of the hobos using trickery and and almost fucking killing this train <laughs> with all the stuff that they do it, you know, almost giving poor Charles Tynan a heart attack you know which is a nice foreshadowing to what happens to him later on the clash of ideals because the shack what's interesting is his cruelty is still built around responsibility he has a job he has a task this is his vehicle he has to keep it safe he has to get his cargo from a to b but he's incredibly ruthless in how he maintains that responsibility. His arsenal of weapons. But he's truck testing out the hammers. Oh, the hammers. He's got the chains and that we were talking before you got on the, on the air, that amazing rope with the spike on it. Oh my God. And when we see that come back twice, that is just fantastic. And then that weird moment of hesitation, because we don't get any sort of hesitation when it comes to a number one, trying to grab that rope and stop that spike from bouncing up and hitting cigarette. But that great moment of hesitation where Keith Carradine's cigarette character, is just like, "Mm, well, I don't know. And just lets a number one, just take all of that abuse. Mm-hmm. Keith Haring's face in that scene, I mean, he does a magnificent job acting just with facial cues because you see so much of his character go from, you know, he's scared, he doesn't know what to do, he doesn't want to let go of one hand to try and get the rope because he's afraid he's going to fall, he sees Lee Marvin being hurt, and then this sort of moment that comes over him where he's just like, oh yeah, I can screw you over, you've been fucking with me all this time. I'm the one who's in power. Like, I'm in charge. You're at my mercy now. Yeah, and despite the fact that Lee Marvin, while fucking him over, has also been teaching him things and protecting him th- protecting him against things, and again, protecting him against the spike on the rope, and he has no compassion for that. No. He fails to see any lesson in anything. Yeah, and I kind of wonder again if that's a commentary as far as the youth just don't want to understand. They just aren't there to be taught. I mean, the whole scene where Lee Marvin is gathering the pails, all that Cigarette can focus on is that he keeps tossing these pails at him. And then he just grabs, you know, uh, A1 grabs a bunch of pails, walks off, and then there's a fade. And then Cigarette is still sitting there surrounded by pails, not getting it. <laughs> Time has gone by. And then when he finally scoops up the pails and climbs up the hill, A1's just sitting there like, what the hell took you so long? I kind of get the feeling through a lot of this that the cigarettes character he's not interested in survival he's interested in you know the the reputation like he doesn't yeah. really want this as a way of living like a way of being it's just like he wants some thrill he wants to be famous it's it's a form of celebrity 
Which, now I think about it, is something that Aldrich has explored before in, like, the big knife, Legend of Lila Claire. That's a really good, that's a good connection. I like that idea. Yeah, and I think that idea of celebrity also goes through with this whole idea of communication as well. There's the the communication as far as the way that the stories travel. The one hobo who comes out and is calling um, A number one a liar because A number one has said, yeah, I rode the number 19. And and then the one hobo comes out and he's like, no, you didn't do that. There's a kid down at the, you know, wherever uh, who says that he did that. It's not you. And then we get that. Once they start to do the bets, which I guess, again, kind of reminds me of um, Cool Hand Luke, this whole like betting scene reminded me of the 50 eggs. And then when those bets go out over the wire and we have the telegraphs going multi screen. Yes. <laughs> I love that multi screen. You can only see oh, that. Man, when on Robert Aldrich started using multi screen, he embraced it. Like, I think it culminates in, in Twilight's Last Gleaming, where like four different stories are all playing out at the same time for like 40 minutes of the movie. Eat your heart out, Brian De Palma. Oh, you should have read the script of that one, where it's like every page is broken into four different mini pages. The idea that A number one doesn't necessarily need that telegraph. He has the uh, reputation. When he walks into that, I think there's a couple camps of hobos that he walks into, and everybody knows him. Or if they don't know him, they treat him with respect. They have deference for who this guy is. Whereas Cigarette is, yeah, just, oh, yeah, I did this and I did that. And then the way that a number one will call him out and be like, you didn't do that. This guy died over here. You know, you said that you murdered him, but no, he actually died over here. Nobody knew who did it, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, yeah, he's desperately grasping for, for fame and, you know, posting Snapchat photos all the time and just, you know, his, his cigarettes, Instagram, he's just like trying to get likes and stuff and it just doesn't work for him at all. Like he's making the duck face. It's just, he's a failure. Yeah. It's a, a number one has a reputation that he's earned just by living and cigarette is so desperate for a reputation he hasn't earned. And the shack just wants to hit people. And he could try to ride on. A number one's coattails, and that's ultimately his undoing, is when at the end, when they finally have this huge blowout between Shaq and A number one, where they're fighting on this train car, and it's just this incredible fight. And when it's all over, there's Cigarette going, oh, we sure did give it to him, and using the Wii like crazy. And it's just like, fuck you, kid. Off he goes. <laughs> Kick him to the curb. We'll talk about it more when we get to the scene, but... In the midst of that fight, Lee Marvin still manages to show a remarkable amount of compassion, despite how violent that is. And it, it still catches me off guard when yeah, I see that. It's a really powerful, powerful moment, just like the selection of when he does that. Yeah, where it's like he's literally thrown Shaq over the side and then reaches down to pick him back up. And even then, he's still kind of disguising it as, I promised you a fight. And yeah, then was exactly. and then was cigarette going going into the big whole speech about you get you got guts you got skills but you don't have the heart. I was afraid for a minute there that things were going to take a weird turn when they got to that scene of the baptism because that kind of comes out of nowhere. Some son of a bitch stole our clothes. I was so glad for that payoff. That was fantastic. <laughs> I was like, what are they doing here? And then that line really hits it home. And then and then Lee Marvin acting as he's getting dunked under the water. <laughs> Jesus Christ. When I was reading um, some of the uh, Jack London and the Leon Ray Livingston mm. texts about being hobos, I didn't come across that exact scene, but no. it did become immediately apparent how important 
clothing in stealing clothing is to these people. Because I think both mm-hmm. of them recount instances, instances of their clothes being stolen by someone else. And they're them trying to find clothes to replace it and then catching up with the person who has their clothes and then trying to get them back. I mean, that is, I guess, you know, they're in the elements. They need something to put on their bodies and they don't have money and no other way to get it. I mean, even when like a number one got that burn on his arm and he's tearing off his sleeves to get at treating it, he's like then still just pulling the sleeve back up because he's not going to lose that sleeve. Hell no. Well, I think Christopher Knopf, the screenwriter, did a tremendous job of doing the research for this. And then, yeah, when you read the descriptions, even those opening descriptions of A Number One and Cigarette, he goes into great pains to talk about their clothes and talk about where things are torn and how things are threadbare and everything. That screenplay, which I think was very faithfully adapted, I thought he did a fantastic job with it. I didn't revisit the screenplay, but I like remember from reading it back like a decade ago, it wasn't that different. They stuck to it pretty close. There's a lot of stuff from the from Coast to Coast with Jack London that Livingston wrote that, you know, you start putting together, you know, a bit here, a bit here, and you start to see these composites form the characters. Like there's the Ernest Borgnine character. Um, Livingston describes someone named Old Strikes who carries a chain and, mm-hmm. you know, beat um, hobos with it. And there's like another one named Bad Bill who has this quote, the word afraid was never put in the dictionary for my attention. The hobo who will undertake to best me isn't born yet sunny. And it's sort of like you can start to see, you know, Borgnine's yeah. philosophy come from that. And then there's another one, old Jeff Carr, who had the reputation of being, you know, the most violent you know, of all the railroad people. And even the Shaq's name up in uh, Jack London's text, Jack London says that that's slang for um, a brakeman. They were kind of the, the, the overall mercenaries that guarded the train, basically. Not just the Shaq, but the Shacks. And that's interesting because I, I did not have a chance to read the A number one books, but I did read The Road by Jack London. Most of that is about, you know, like just kind of wandering around where you get food, what what's like being in prison with just a few specific chapters focused on the train. But even then, that's where you get the uh, basically the rail tie tied to a rope being dangled under the cars comes right out of the Jack London book. Yeah, Livingston also talks about that in a, in a couple different different chapters. Well, I'm curious, uh, how does Livingston characterize Jack London? It starts off where he's just like, oh, yeah, there's this young kid who uh, – answered my ad in a newspaper because I was looking for a companion. But it quickly becomes that the Jack London character is actually very knowledgeable. Maybe because I had seen Emperor of the North, I was sort of anticipating this somewhat of experience, somewhat of naivete. But they both seemed like kind of equals. And okay. there didn't seem to be much conflict between the two of them. I was wondering about that, given the portrayal of the cigarette character. I know cigarette was Jack London's own name. All I know is that in the road, he himself kind of came off as a smug asshole, but I I don't know if that's where they drew it from. But it's interesting that it's kind of more they just took like bits and vignettes and pieces and then kind of built a story out of them. The coast to coast, the like overall narrative is basically on the train because they're trying to go from point Mm -hmm. A to point B. There's a couple scenes where they get off the train, but a lot of it is just. How do you get yeah. back on the train? What do you do when you're on the train? How are we getting on? How are we avoiding yeah. you know, being caught? Very practical. Very educational. And it seems like it, it's an original story, the whole like conductor vows to kill any hobo who rides his train. Hobo says, I'm going to ride your train. That's basically the plot setup. And then they kind of did all this research to flesh it out. 
And I'm not sure as far as like the actual logic of the film, as far as how, when they're kicked off the train, they manage to get back on the train. Like we do see at one point the passenger train that they take, which, okay, cool. So they manage to pass by 19 and then get back on it. Well, there was the one where it, it stopped on the bridge and they were inspecting the cars one by one. The train was actually backing up, so they were actually able to get in front of it again. That scene on the bridge, I mean, there's so many tense scenes in this movie. And you never know because, I mean, they open it up so well with that kind of pre-credit sequence where we get to see get to see fucking Shaq nail the guy with a his hammer and then see his body cut in two pieces across the railroad tracks. It basically says, okay, these are the stakes of this film. The, the uh, bridge sequence, I also love the whole bit where the guy just swears that he saw that hat and, and the shack is like, well, did you see something or did you see nothing? And the guy's just like, fine, I saw nothing. Bullshit, you saw a hat. <laughs> oh, man. And, and just, Charles Tynan, just the way that he stopped right before the end of the truck car because he knew that the shack would be standing there glaring at him. Bosses are never any good. No. Yeah. Also, I would never want Ernest Borgnine to yell at me. <laughs> No, I'd be afraid. And that's something I got to give the range of Ernest Borgnine as an actor, because he plays the most lovable sweethearts and the most cold hearted bastards. I kept thinking about Marty as I was rewatching this. I'm like, this is the same person, right? Yeah. It just I grew up on the Kale's Navy. I kind of get the feeling. I think he loved that. But then when I was reading in his memoirs, he does say it's one of his it was one of his favorite films to make and one of his favorites to watch. The scene with him and Cigarette where he leans down and then just picks up the chair that Cigarette's sitting on. That close-up of him is just astonishing. And, and then just smashing the chair to the ground. I've never had the privilege of seeing this on the big screen. Oh. I love that. If any film programs in, in New York are listening, please show it again. Because I know Metrograph did an Aldrich series a few years ago. Mm. Unfortunately, I missed this. Bring back Aldrich series, please. I've never seen an Aldrich film on the big screen. I would love to so much. Oh, my God. Yeah, I would love to see The Dirty Dozen on the big screen. Oh, Too Late the Hero or Attack. Attack would make a great big screen movie. Now now you're making me thirsty. Basically, just close-ups of Jack Palance snarling at Eddie Albert. That's all I need on the big screen. You said this movie is very stripped down. And that one-line log line that you gave is absolutely perfect because – that's all there is to this movie. And then those little moments along the way, but those moments along the way are so nice in meeting some of those characters. I love the guy that one of the first hobos that we meet outside of our two main um, in the script, he goes by the name uh, clown. Like everybody's got their great nicknames and stuff. And he's played by the same guy who plays the uh, preacher in uh, blazing saddles. So to see his face, I was just like, Oh, you're on your own son. I just kept thinking that as he was like pontificating, very grandly in this film. What about the police officer with the turkey? Oh, Simon Oakland. He is wonderful. Now you've made him think he's a turkey. You've got to convince him he's a turkey. I love that scene. Just the howl that he gives after they give him the moonshine. Yeah. I'm a man of temperance. It could be so corny, but they play it just right. And that's why there's a lot of humor and a lot of warmth to this movie, while also a lot of hardness and a lot of grit. I always, I always prefer a movie where it's kind of like a whole emotional spectrum that it's always juggling. Uh, speaking of corny, there is one part of this movie that is so unbelievably corny. The song? The song. I love the song. Well, Mike, I, I have to ask you a question. 
Can a man ever be a train? No, a man can, can a never train be, be a train. A man, a man in a train. I, I will give it, I love the <laughs> instrumental man. version. Like, I love those, like, again, like the scenes with the pails and just, just, you know, climbing up and down the hill of garbage, where it's like nothing's really happening, but just that soaring uh, melody of that instrumental song just gives so much personality to it all. <laughs> My buddy and I have already made plans to record our own version of the song later this summer. We both adore Marty Robbins. We adore this movie. It hits me. It hits me. It hits me hard. I love this song. It is ridiculous, but I can't help but sing along. I've got a dream, a beautiful dream, and that makes me a man. Don't try to stop me. A man's not a train. A train's not a man. And that's the thing is it's so corny, but it it, it kind of like loops around to becoming charming. And again, it adds another layer of warmth to the overall film, which kind of helps offset just how gritty and brutal it can be. My one complaint about the song is the chords. Devold is something weird. Like they don't move like in their traditional way. Like if you're going to make a train song, do it like Johnny Cash and make it straightforward. <laughs> this one moves around with the chords. It's a little too complicated. I'm sorry, but when you get the epic, fully soaring orchestra over carrying buckets, you've won me over. And the whole scene of showing him how to grease the track and then being like, dude, I got this side over there. Yeah, and cigarettes just fucking clueless. I love that A number one just has his own little piece of wood. Oh, yeah. That's, his uh, multi-purpose piece of wood. They talk about that in the script. He calls it it's a, a something key. I can't remember what it's called, but it, uh, they make a big point of saying that he carries that around with him all the time. So yeah, he's got his his stuff. He's all prepared, but yeah, cigarette is completely clueless. Even that moment that I keep talking about with them in the boxcar together, he basically cigarette fucks up and lets the transom close and lock on him, and then you know Shaq comes along and actually puts the bar through. Because once that happens, uh, a number one is just like, well, we're fucked. I gotta think of another way out of here. And again, goes back to the elements by utilizing fire, utilizing uh, basically the shack's weapon against them. And then leading to that whole chaotic scene at the rail yards where they have to separate off the car and put out the fire. And that weird moment of like, it's like a almost a Keystone Cops kind of a thing where the guy keeps yelling at the other guy. I think it might be Matt Clark. And he's just like, well, go get the sand bucket. No, go get the hand puppet. Yeah, Dana Poland was saying that this was actually shot on the same around the same area that uh, Buster Keaton's The General was shot on, which I found interesting. And so he was trying to kind of form an argument that there's a lot of silent comedian nods going on in here. And there are a lot of double takes and sometimes even a triple take in this movie. So it you could almost turn off the sound uh, other than the Marty Robbins song, turn off the sound and then watch the movie that way because – Really, the dialogue isn't going to add anything to it. The turkey chase scene into the you know hobo camp is totally Keystone Cops. It totally. Is. You know, oh, the yeah. music They're, that kicks in, yeah. Oh yeah, and it's got the, the the jangly little piano stuff. And is the film sped up at that point? It almost looks like it. Can I didn't notice one or two shots where on the train it was, but that's about okay. it. Okay, maybe that's what I'm remembering. It's just called energy. I know that just off screen, there's probably mattresses and all kinds of stuff set up for these guys in case they all the physicality in this movie. Oh my God. Just watching Borknight just trot down the top of the train. I'm like, holy shit. How is he doing? And I know there's no fucking wires that they're painting out digitally in in this movie. Just the ways that they casually hop on and off the train. They're literally like jumping under wheel. And it's like, 
close-up medium shots where you can see it's the actor. Yeah, Borgnine talks about that in, in his memoir. Day one on the set, Aldrich was like, you need to learn how to run on top of these trains. And Borgnine's talking about how it's going only 25 miles an hour. It's like you're still on a train going 25 miles an hour. Have you all read uh, or looked at his memoir yet? Like the no. passage about this? So he talks about when he's dangling the uh, the rope with the uh, with the railroad spike mm-hmm. on it. At one point, he got distracted because he looked over at the camera car going alongside the train, and it had stopped. And he went to see what was going on and lost track of what was happening. And the clothesline got caught in the the train reels, mm-hmm. and, and he got pulled down. And he let go and had to like grab onto the ladder while the train was still chugging along. Wow. Oh, my God. Did people get hurt on this movie? I haven't heard anything yet, but he did say, I got no extra hazard pay for Emperor of the North. So I'm assuming that meant he did a lot of that, you know, work himself. Yeah. Well, I'm just thinking of just that that shot of the first hobo that he kills in the opening scene of just that overhead shot of the guy falling under the car, trying desperately to grab anything he can as he's getting pulled under. Oh, that is blood chilling. I know. And yeah, it's just like, it's, we got, or we got our actors, we got a train. I, I just want to know, did they, how much time did they really like just get people comfortable with this, get people used to this? How long did that take? I'm not sure, but I know Borgnine was talking about how the actual, um, the, the train itself from like the movement, the nails would come out. And so he was afraid <laughs> of falling because the nails would impale him. So in between shots, he said he would go around with a hammer and actually put them back in. I wonder if that, if, if that was just his prop hammer. <laughs> oh, good question. I have no idea. It's a dual purpose characteristic. <laughs> you think he went to uh, hammer school for six weeks before this started? I'm just picturing now an Ernest Borgnine cover of MC Hammer, and it's 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 something my mind needed. Oh, please, Hammer, don't hurt him. Have there ever been any stories about Lee Marvin's experience on the movie that anyone came across? You know, I didn't revisit the, the biography of Lee Marvin that um, I read a few years ago. I should have. Now, yeah, there what, wasn't a lot. In, I looked briefly at the Dwayne Epstein book, and there wasn't a ton about it. But, you know, he... The one passage I did, Mark, was he said, I got a special kick playing rebels over establishment types. I've always been a bum, so I'm being paid to act out my fantasies. I mean, all I really know is just some of the history in terms of, like, Robert Aldrich, because I know following Dirty Dozen, he went off and formed his own independent studio and then had a whole string of flops. And then, like, within four films, that studio, like, died. And then Olzana's Raid came about, and then this was the second film after that. And I know Martin Ritt was the original sign-on director for this. And, and, Peck- then, and then Peckinpah, yeah. I could see Peckinpah doing this film, absolutely. This movie didn't do well, if memory serves. And I think, like, Roger Ebert panned it, Siskel panned it. Like, there weren't that many positive reviews of it. In, in uh, Alan Silver's book, Whatever Happened to Robert Aldrich, he mentions that shortly after this movie opened, there was a newspaper headline, Emperor of an Empty Studio. That was when Aldrich had to sell his studio. That's a shame because, again, he was making some really good movies because, I mean, like Killing of Sister George is phenomenally uncomfortable. Too Late the Hero is kind of fascinating as a glimpse of like him trying to do push Dirty Dozen even further than he was allowed to initially. You know, Grissom Gang is a very unpleasant movie, but it, it's a very interesting one. And then I'm trying to remember what was between that and Elzana's Raid. But Elzana's Raid, again, was I him and 
Which one? This time, Legend of Lila Claire. Legend of Lila, which is one of the few that I haven't seen because it wasn't available back when I originally went through them. Which I've always wanted to because I know he basically cast Ernest Borgnine to play himself or a, a, a take on himself as this kind of weird avant-garde, again, exploration of celebrity as basically this one woman plays multiple characters in a movie. That's one of those films I, I, have, I really still need to sit down and watch. But then, like, Elzana's Raid, where it's like him and Burt Lancaster were like, you know, Apache, we made some mistakes on. Let's let's take another stab at, stab at it. And then this. And, and it's like a, sh- a shame that he had such a string of... Uh, he, he almost fell into the John Carpenter thing. It's like he's making really great movies that nobody cared about. A lot of these movies all had the same cinematographer, too. Mm. Joseph, is it pronounced Baroche? Baroque? Yeah. I mean, he did Flight of a Phoenix, Legend of Lila Claire, Grissom Gang, Ozana's Raid, Longest Yard, Hustle, All the Marbles. And Aldrich was always known for having this really good, strong look to all of his films like this. So, so again, it definitely falls in line with a lot of his other stuff. I haven't seen Ozana's Raid yet because I think there are multiple versions of it, so I don't know which one to watch. It's an interesting one to especially watch in conjunction with Apache. Because it was very much them trying to go back and correct the mistakes of Apache. I don't know which version I saw. I just kind of saw whatever was available on DVD back like 12 years ago. But yeah, it's worth a visit. Grissom Gang. Eh. Uh, you can avoid Hustle. Hustle Hustle really didn't work for me. And that was more of Burt Reynolds' passion project that he did as a favor. I, I think there are things about Hustle that I, I did like. It's a very strange movie. There's definitely a lot of problems with it, but... I, I, I liked Reynolds. He, I thought he had some really interesting moments. I liked especially – there's something kind of melancholic because I think yeah. Yeah, there's a point in the movie – I mean, he acts kind of like a piece of shit for a lot of the movie. But yeah. there is a point where he realizes, oh, my God, I have been acting like a piece of shit for a really long time. And I liked that sort of – I thought that was a really nice unexpected shift in his character. And I thought he did that very well. And I thought that was an interesting sort of – you know, movement for the, you know, sort of noir op genre where they're normally, you know, they're tough, they're cynical, disrespectful to everyone. And it's the the victim's father who's like, can't you show a little respect? And he realizes, wow. Yeah. He's been so busy being this hyper macho caricature, which, you know, there's a lot of hyper masculinity, you know, in some of Aldrich's movies being criticized. And I thought that was a nice critical moment. Yeah, and Hustle, it was a very interesting book because it was a very holistic book. It's kind of more just exploring L.A. as a whole and how all these little threads and vignettes kind of weave into this broader picture of L.A. And the film is just, it's trying to kind of sort through all that, but it still feels kind of overly disconnected. It didn't feel like his heart was fully in it, but it's not a bad, it's not a terrible movie. But I mean, it's like, you know, between that and Kiss Me Deadly, I'll take Kiss Me Deadly. I really like all the marbles, though, the one that he ended his career with. It's it's just a very nice, sweet, buttoned-down, again, movie just about a manager of a women's tag team wrestling. I still haven't yeah. seen that. I really want to. Oh, it's is good. that the one with uh, Peter, Peter Falk? Peter Yep. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's been on my to-watch list for a long time. I didn't realize that Aldrich was the director. That was his last movie. Well, and then, of course, the biggest movie of the 70s for him was Longest Yard, which, again, it's a really fun crowd-pleaser while also being a really gritty prison flick. I thought you were going to say the Frisco Kid. Frisco Kid, I was really pissed off on because the script and the novelization, they, they cut like two-thirds of that script out of it. Oh, wow. It, it was this very episodic odyssey 
of this kind of almost satirical journey of this rabbi across the Wild West. And every now and then he would meet up with this cowboy and cross paths with this cowboy. It's like they cut out everything but him and the cowboy. Was that due to uh, who played the cowboy and that this was post-1977? Probably. But I mean, like, the original script was more like Ballad of Cable Hogue. Oh, wow. That's a fantastic movie. Love that movie. But I mean, yeah, it, anyways, yeah we, we've kind of wandered down the Aldrich path. All right, we're going to take a break and play a few words from our sponsors. Hey fans, this is Reverend Scott. Just want to tell you about Outside the Cinema. Great company. They review cult films, any cult film, every cult film. And it's something you should tune into. So if you get a chance, go to the website, look these guys up, Outside the Cinema, and find out what the hot cult films are today. What's going on? These guys are right on the cutting edge of reviewing cult movies. And if you're a cult member, or you want to be a cult member, or you're thinking about being a cult member, your mom's a cult member, your dad's a cult member, your damn mother-in-law's a cult member. Tune in outside the cinema, baby. You know, find out what's going on. Reverend Scott, and that's out. Who is Carl Kolchak? He's a reporter. Now that is news, Vincenzo. News! And we are a news paper. We are supposed to print news, not suppress it. With the INS. What's an INS? Independent News Servicer, founded in 1904 by Enrico Peluzzi. Who seems to have a nose for the strange and unusual. Well, last year in Las Vegas, I uncovered a series of murders that turned out to have been committed by a vampire. And what is the Kolchak Tapes? It's a podcast. All about Carl Kolchak. What's a Kolchak? The Night Stalker. And where can you get it? On iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.kolchaktapes.com. As foolish a game as any that Gory the Ghoul could make up. Hello from Cinema Detroit. We are Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema, and also the only first-run, seven-day-a-week movie theater in greater downtown. We deliver an eclectic mix of mainstream, art, indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine or a DJ mixing a set, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former furniture store and a warm neighborhood atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.org, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you soon at 4126 3rd Street in the city, 48201. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV. And you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. All right, we're back and we're talking about Emperor of the North Pole. So I should say, as far as the title goes, this was released as Emperor of the North Pole, but then apparently was re-released later on as Emperor of the North because somebody thought it was going to sound like a Christmas story. Lee Marvin and Ernest Borgnine duking it out on the Polar Express, I would be down for. Yeah. 
I love the whole term emperor of the North Pole. Like here you are the emperor of nothing. You know, you are the Lord of the wasteland. There's nothing there for you at all. And that's their title of, you know, this, this high rank, you know, King, they mentioned King of the road, uh, another point. So of course I'm thinking, you know, of the song of that, but okay. It's a great title. And then emperor of the North doesn't really have the same thing, but I, I don't know. Did you guys think Christmas movie when you said Emperor of the North Pole? No, because again, I like saw that title when I first got to it. And I like I have like zero idea, zero expectations as to what it was about. Like I read that script cold because I always read the scripts before I watch the movie, and I I read that script with not knowing anything and just was like, oh wow, oh oh hello, this is all coming together nicely. I mean, even Emperor of the North. I think when I saw the title, I was thinking like some sort of like Yukon. Um, death hunt sort of. Oh, okay, but like I was not in the least disappointed. I was thrilled to find out that it wasn't in. That there was no snow. I, I don't miss the snow. And now I'm thinking about it like a seventies Lee Marvin version of Bad Santa. Lee Marvin, he's up there with Gene Hackman for me and Ernest Borgnine as far as a movie can be horrible, but those guys are always good in it, no matter what it is. One of the things I was reading about this movie, and um, Borgnine says that he uh, based his character uh, on Jack Elam. Ooh. Oh. And it is, it's, I was reading through my notes, um, and he said one of the reasons he did that is because of like Elam's eyes, you know, sort of like going off in different directions, mm. which was practical because. Borgnine needed to have one eye in front of him and one eye on the train beneath him. And apparently, you mm. were trying to practice how to do that. And again, that makes me think of Jack Elam in Kiss Me Deadly, where he's the really intense, heavy, you know, right-hand man of the villain. I, I can see that, yeah. Well, there's so much looking in this film. You know, I talked about how a lot of it runs All silent. three of them have green eyes, too. That, that I, I love that. Oh, yeah. And like I said, there's the double takes and everything, and there's so much just shots of people looking at things those great shots at the beginning that are almost silent where you just have like the hobos almost like popping up like little prairie dogs looking at the train as it goes by so amazing well even even that scene later on where the it's the hobos in the bushes you know throwing insults at the shack right like popping up getting their word out and then just disappearing into the shrubbery again yeah under the safety of the fog because otherwise there's no way those guys would be talking back like that no. <laughs> and then I love the contrast with A number one, where it's like he's he's basically completely screwed over the shack, and Shaq has to devote his full attention to getting this train running so he doesn't run into another train. And A number one just steps out of the fog and just casually walks by along yeah. the train until he just hops right on, just casually, just being like, not a pro- not a care in the world. So good. Yeah, it tells a little bit about depression settings in movies before, and I was trying to make a list, and it's just a very brief list, and I'm not even sure if some of these movies are valid, because I know I saw Boxcar Bertha, but it's been a long time ago. Was that depression-based as well? I haven't seen so, it, but I know a lot of the gangsters overlap with that. I mean, just thinking about Aldrich, the Grissom gang, again, you know. Right. Oh, true. The, the flapper era, Yeah. And then I want to say Days of Heaven was set right around the time of like the yeah. Dust Bowl and stuff, right? Yeah. And I mean, another Carradine film, because I think David was in Boxcar Bertha, but he was also in Bound for Glory, which I know for sure was set during the Depression. 
And then I mentioned Paper Moon. So, yeah, I, I, that was just like a brief look at, you know, movies in the 70s that were set during the Depression. And it just seems like there were a whole lot of them. You always see a cultural reflection of, you know, kind of always looping back like 20 to 40 years in the past. Because, you know, that's where you have the filmmakers kind of looking back on their childhood. You know, like Robert Aldrich, you know, he was born in that era and grew up in the 40s, you know. So it's like he would have heard all the stories growing up, you know. Filmmakers always kind of reflecting their parents' era, too, because they always heard stories about it. Or they, you know, parents always threw them up on the films that they grew up with, you know. I can imagine that period in the 60s and 70s where there was a large look back at, like, the 30s and 40s. What I was more familiar with growing up in the 1970s was that weird nostalgia for the 1950s. It's like the pendulum had swung so far in the 60s that people were almost desperate to get back to what they saw as a purity of the 1950s. And just the whole idea of like Love American Style and Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley and all of these films and, and things that were set, you know, American Graffiti that were set in the 1950s to be like, oh, remember that age? You know, where were you at this point? point in your life and all these kind of things like pre-death of kennedy kind of stuff yeah yeah and you know like oh let's let's reclaim that time let's make america great again yeah so i wonder if one side of the coin is the nostalgia for the 50s and the other side of the coin is like look at how desperate we were in the 1930s i think there's a lot of that too where, where part of it is you know again like the the your reflection on the 80s and even the 90s now it's you know, filmmakers of today looking back on their what they grew up with. But there is also the, you know, back when things were simpler before all the troubles began. Right. You know, you, you think about when people get into their teens and their 20s, that's when they gain a big self-awareness of the world and they suddenly realize it's a lot of a messier of a time than, than they initially thought it was. But then they can just kind of blind that off by saying, yeah, but back when I was a kid, it was so much better, you know? Do you think they're nostalgic? Do you think they're like, they all seem like, Kind of gritty and violent, and the films about the '30s definitely are gritty and violent. I would say, and I don't think they're painting it in so much of a nostalgic light. I mean, I'm thinking of like, wasn't there like a whole locust scene in Days of Heaven and stuff? Sorry, it's been years since I've seen it, but oh yeah, that's the one with the locusts. It's not painting it as like I I keep getting it mixed up with Exorcist too. They're not painting the '30s in that light. I think they're showing it as being more gritty and stuff whereas the 1950s i think they are they tend and i somebody's going to come along and just completely disprove disprove this but it felt like they were holding the 50s in esteem and then saying but the 1930s they were pretty bad i don't know and then just kind of i don't know if they didn't want to deal with world war ii because this is around the era of vietnam as well and then maybe we don't want to talk about the war but it felt like they were really focusing on those two decades yeah, and I wonder how much of it is, is, you know, I think the 70s was also reflecting in early eras. Like, again, the flapper era was an earlier version of a sexual revolution. You know, also, you know, a lot of women empowerment. A lot of themes that were important of this era are kind of reflecting back on past eras where that was important. Or even, you know, a lot of the economic strife of the 70s, you know, all the gas shortages, the, uh, you know, New York with, with the uh, the trash strikes and all that stuff had a very depression era feel to it and you know kind of also reflecting on other past areas eras because again the as you get up into the 40s it's the big war era and then the 50s and the 60s had this very polished combed glossed over steamed and pressed look to it especially once you got to the technicolor glamour and, and the 70s were a very much dour earthy period and they were kind of looking back at other eras where again there was no color to the 20s and 30s because all those films were black and white 
or tinted brown, you know? And I, I don't know, it, it's weird kind of thinking about what, what was what was that viewpoint from that specific point in time? Because that was a past that was a lot less far away than it is now. And now I just have such nostalgia for 2016 and 2015, I can't even tell you. I know, right? <laughs> Things were so much simpler then. I know, back when we all just got to kick back with Once Upon a Time, got to enjoy Battleship and the Smurfs movies. Just imagine when we get to a period where people have nostalgia for Ready Player One. Oh, God. Please don't make me throw up in my mouth. I still have not seen that movie. I, I genuinely enjoy it, but it, it's it's kind of a mess of a movie. But I, I I I I it's hard is in the right place for me at least. It's 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 a it's a it's a decently entertaining thing. Oh wow! I hated the book. The book was atrocious. I like the movie for having the gall to heavily rewrite the book. Oh. I don't think I could bring myself to read the book. And I definitely can't watch that movie a second time. Armada is a terrible book. That's one quality is that it's better. Granted, I say this as someone who's also read all four Twilight. So, you know. Oof. Wow. Take it with a grain of salt. Why do you do this to yourself? Hey, I my early podcasting community was built around like that era of geekdom. Shout out to Made of Fail and Cleolinda Jones. Uh, one other film that I think is interesting to compare it to is... Runaway Train. Oh, that's a great one. Wow. Especially if you consider that like Kurosawa's original intent of that was to set it during the Great Depression and in upstate New York. And and I think, you know, it's it's Runaway Train is kind of an uneven film because you have the Kurosawa aspects, then they brought in Edward Bunker who added a lot of his own stuff, and then Paul Zendel came in and did a bunch of stuff, and then that director came in. So it's kind of a hodgepodge of a lot of different creative voices, and they don't all entirely fit together. But it's it's a similar, again, just stripped down, minimalist. These Once you get past the extended prison prologue, which was entirely added by Edward Bunker and I think is a little bit much, it's, again, a very stripped down, two prisoners on a train – and the people outside the train are like, well, do we kill these men and derail the train or do we let it crash into a city? Whoa. Oh, yeah, that I movie. This. You haven't seen that? Oh, you have to check John it out. John Voight and Eric Roberts. Again, it was it was based on a screenplay that was supposed to be Kurosawa's first American film back in the 60s before he, before the whole Tora 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 situation happened. Um, and I, I still wish that someone would publish a train... The original Japanese version of his script is available online in the Akira Kurosawa archives. Unfortunately, I can't read Japanese. I would love someone to publish a translation of that original script. I can I can translate at least one line for you. Manny, I need some shoes. But yeah, it's it's still it's a very interesting film. And again, the it, it's kind of almost a, a inversion ending where, again, it ends with the John Voight character standing atop the train basically just giving this big speech about freedom and all that stuff as he's basically committing suicide by just being like, I would rather die free as this train plows into this mountain than than go back to prison. And it's also a beautifully shot film. It, it is. It, it, I, I think they're interesting comparison pieces. And it's interesting to kind of look at this as kind of almost a bit closer to what the Kurosawa version might have been. Because I know that was also supposed to be his first color film, but it never ended up being it. Yeah, Colin, you are in for a treat. I'm excited. Yeah, it is fantastic. And just, I mean, the supporting cast, T.K. Carter, Kenneth McMullen, this is one of the first uh, films with um, Danny Trejo, one of yeah, Danny Trejo's first films. Coach. Yeah, yeah. 
And, and both and both John Voight and Eric Roberts were both nominated for Oscars for that movie. Oh my God! Mm. And then Rebecca De Mornay showing up at one point, and she's well, yeah, she, she's one of the other main characters where she's the only person, the other person on the train, and they actually do something. And it was Andre Konchalovsky uh, directed that. It, it, very very interesting movie. It's a little wobblier. It's a it's it's a little more all over the place than this one is. Especially the I've never been the hugest Edward Bunker fan. I find him a little indulgent um to the point where he even is in the movie as basically playing himself as an aged prisoner and, and i do feel like they kind of distracted by having like the entire first 40 minutes be this whole prison edward bunker prison drama before they even get on the train whereas what i know about the kurosawa script is the opening scene is them getting on the train and within the first 20 minutes it's on it, it's it's gone runaway yeah where it's a train with four locomotives where just as they were starting to move it a uh, guy had a heart attack and it just kept going yeah, it's and it just wonderful. keeps building speed. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but I just remember it being great. And uh, I mean, this is like Eric Roberts in his prime, and John Voight in his prime as well. And John Voight just chewing up the scenery. My God. Yeah. Oh God. Oh man. And, and to get with a with a New Orleans accent, so he's kind of basically a predecessor of his Anaconda character. <laughs> and he like keeps doing like that. He keeps calling people suckers. Yeah. I'm gonna get you, sucker. Yeah. It's pretty good. Mike, have you ever had John Voight on, on the projection booth? No, I haven't. Um, if, if you do, I ask that you ask him about Anaconda. Oh, definitely, Baby Bird. I will. That one little wink he gives after he's vomited up. Which just looks like it's CGI, doesn't it? <laughs> I honestly have never seen Anaconda since it was in theaters. Wow. And I still remember that moment of him getting coughed up by the snake and then winking. I just remember the fight with the panther, where it looked like it was a stuffed panther. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I kind of want to rewatch it now. I don't think I've seen it since theaters either, but it sounds awesome. I, like a good Friday night. I or said the words movie. Baby Bird the other day, and my wife's like, what's that movie? And I was like, Anaconda. <laughs> Well, and I'm trying to think of like other what were some other like good runaway train movies, you know, or, or just like a big action movie set on a Unstoppable. train. Unstoppable. Money Train. Was it was a good one. Money Train, yeah. Hell the end of speed. All right, guys, we're gonna take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Your mind. It is the center of your life. It is everything you hear. Everything you see, everything you feel, it is everything you are. How would you know if someone stole your mind? That's right. We'll be back next week with the first of a two-part discussion of Philip K. Dick films with a discussion of Total Recall. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Cullen and Noel. Cullen, what has been keeping you busy lately? Not a ton. My day job is more than more than I want to deal with. Could I plug a friend's book that yeah. just came out? It might be of interest to people listening. Um, my old friend Sam Bett just translated a previously untranslated Yukio Mishima novella called star 
um, mm. that was inspired by his time uh, working on the film uh, Afraid to Die by Masamura. Oh, wow. Oh, it just cool. came out last week by New Directions. I haven't read it yet. Just heard excerpts um, when he was reading from it. It sounds fascinating and, you know, as kind of wild and bonkers as you would expect from Mishima. And Noel, how about you? What's uh, keeping you busy these days? Uh, well, again, work. A lot more work than I expected to. I recently got promoted, and that involves a lot more hours. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, my main thing is over at Schumacast, where we're going through all of the films of Joel Schumacher, because someone had to. <laughs> Our very next episode is Batman Forever. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we got through all of the 70s, all of the 80s, and we're finally at that point where everything changes. And by the way, a great interview on the Falling Down episode. Oh, thank you. He was so much fun to talk to. I can imagine. He seems lovely in all the interviews I've seen him in. Yeah, he was so exuberant. And I can't remember if I left in that moment when he realized that I was asking him about Timothy Carey, and he just exploded with yes, so much Yes, yes, I remember that. Oh, yeah. God. He was great. I would love to talk to with him again sometime. I would love to talk to him one time. Yeah, that would be. I just want to ask about all the co- the films he did as a costume designer. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, but yeah, and then um, over at Greystoke, where we're going through all of the cinematic history of uh, Tarzan, we're just about to hit the last Johnny Weissmuller movie. And then over at my old show, uh, Masters of Carpentry, where we went through all of John Carpenter, we're, uh, we're just starting a mini series of Halloween related stuff, getting up to the 2018 Halloween, starting with the unproduced Dennis Etchison Halloween four. So I've, I've got a lot of very interesting stuff coming out soon. That is quite a wide swath of material that you're dealing with. And I didn't even mention the Thunder of the Barbarian podcast. Wow. Do tell. Because I love Thundar. Oh, yeah. We have a Thundar Road where we're going through Thunder of the Barbarian in geographical order, where we've mapped out every episode by its landmarks as a road trip. Oh, very cool. Ooh. And we're even measuring the, di- the the amount of distance they would cover each day on horseback just to try to map out how long it would take to t- do that trip. Oh, wow. I just ordered a Ookla the Mook t-shirt. Ooh, wow. Big fan. Every time I see a broken moon in a movie, I, of course, think of Thundar. Oh, God, the ever-changing broken moon. It's like every episode they paint it differently. It's amazing. Well, that's because it's still moving. Exactly. Right. By the way, did you know the sun sword is what broke the moon in half? Of course. (laughs) No, I didn't know that, actually. I I got that tidbit from Buzz Dixon when they had writers of the show. (laughs) Oh, wow. That that was going to be the plot of the Thundar movie, which was going to be both a prequel and sequel, exploring where the sword came from as aliens come back to Earth to reclaim it. Oh, wow. That sounds intense. Yeah. Thunder the Barbarian. Well, thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to our website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. man and a train, a train and a man. They both try to run as far and as fast as they can. But a man's not a train, 
And a train's not a man A man can do things That a train never can Going up a mountain Even halfway to the top The minute that a train runs out of steam It's gotta stop But it's a different story When a man runs out of steam He still can go a long, a long way On nothing but a dream Going across the country When a train runs out of track It has to stop and turn around And then start heading back But many miles from nowhere Out where all the tracks are gone A man who's got himself a dream Can still keep going on So don't try to stop me Don't try to stop me Cause nobody can A beautiful dream and that makes me a man Oh, don't try to stop me Don't try to stop me Cause nobody can I've got a dream A beautiful dream and it makes me Makes me a If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for for listening Christopher Media let's make some noise